<clears throat> nobody. 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 Nobody rage short stories. Hey everyone, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Megan. And you're you, of course, and you're watching Nobody Read Short Stories. So this is episode four of season two, and tonight's story is going to run about 45 minutes. So just to ensure that you guys got the best sound tonight, the reading will be pre-recorded. So here is Britton Valenti reading her story, Food Baby. When I remember being very young, the rush of sensations is overwhelming. A throbbing emptiness in my center, and a swollen hunk of meat in my mouth that I couldn't swallow. Thirst that made my fingers hurt, met with a sudden shock of sweetness that set my chest pounding. Constant waves of nausea that came and went every several hours like the tide. And then hard, crunchy things as brightly colored as Legos that burned all the way down and out. Then on the day they were really Legos, things got much better. I went to a youth center with other children that was overcrowded and loud, and that was a relief because the noises I made were camouflaged, and I felt safe. Meals, however, were confusing. Plates of differently colored mushes and lumps and pieces that looked suspiciously like Legos were placed in front of everyone. Some of the kids scarfed down what was in front of them, wolfing it down like I had seen addicts do other things. Some of the others would put their noses to the plate, then sit up and look down with disdain like the mound had said something stupid or had never seen a certain movie. Their suspicion made sense to me, and I became cautious. None of the foods I had grown up with had been white, so that seemed the safest color to me, and there was something white on every day of the week, further confirming my suspicion that there was a certain safety in its soft, unassumingness. Grits every morning, cauliflower for Monday's lunch, bread from the sandwiches on Tuesdays, rice on Wednesdays, and the chicken sometimes if it was pale enough too, mashed potatoes, then pasta on Fridays, which is actually yellowish, but the lunch lady had said it was like rice when I asked what it was, and then crackers and cereal for the weekend, although the sugar from the cereal brought back bad memories, so I gradually ate it less and less. But while the white foods were safe, they typically made up such a small amount of the daily meals and so many kids left theirs behind, and so an opportunity arose. Mealtimes became math class, a constant negotiation of who could have what and which offer was the better deal. Added into the equation was who hadn't touched their food, who was whose friend that week, who someone wasn't speaking to, who had stolen what from who, and whether it was deserved or not, all hotly debated by us kids until one of the teachers passed at which point the Congress would shut up and eventually start back up again once they'd gone. Despite the pressure of the constant politics, it was always nice to have the other kids talk to me. I started sitting regularly with a girl called Bertie, and she started getting her meatballs and pasta with no sauce so we could trade easier. The system was upset when we started getting pizza on Fridays. There was no trading, as everyone received the same two slices. I removed the pepperoni, cheese, and wiped away the blood-red sauce to get to the white crust underneath, and took such great pains that even the caretakers noticed. I found myself in the office of the director, who said they were worried about my food habits. 
I could have explained about the white food and how more than once I had thrown up so bad that I went to the hospital and saw my skin standing up after it had been pinched by a nurse. But instead I nodded and said I understood. It was best and safest to placate adults and then get away from them. After I left the office, weighing whether cheese could count as white or if I should do something drastic and add green foods to my allowables, word must have gotten out. I was immediately approached by Erica, an older girl who had never deigned to speak to me before. Like me, she was real thin, but taller, so it showed more. She didn't bother to share her name or ask mine, trusting that the small world of the youth center had given both of us the minimal necessary info at some point. Instead, Erica immediately launched into our perceived similarities. Like me, she hated food, and hated even more the caretaker's attempts to force her to feed. We, being victims of the same oppression, needed to stick together and aid each other in our mutual campaign to stay thin. Erica's plan was to become a model once she was 16 and get out of this shithole to see the world. She had photos and drawings of models plastered on the walls of her bed for inspiration and education on her future. I told her I didn't care about being thin. She looked at me aghast, then angry. Of course I wanted to be thin. Everyone wanted to be thin. And everyone who couldn't be thin wanted everyone else to be fat like them. There was a war going on, and we were on the same side. We were some of the lucky few who had managed to get this far at this weight, and the rest of our lives would be determined by how long we could resist. It was at this point that I thought Erica was a crazy person. Maybe she was less obvious, but just as obsessive and strange as Darnell, a boy my age who would look at you like he wasn't sure you were there and answer questions no one had asked. I tried to politely decline joining Erica's ranks. But we have to stick together, she insisted. Besides, you don't know what you're missing. When you don't eat, something happens to you. It's like you get sharper, smarter. You're taller than everyone else in your mind. You can, like, see over everybody's heads and their dumb problems. You can, like, focus, Erica said, holding out her hands and licking her lips like the sensation was better than any piece of candy or fried chicken man could make. And that word stopped me. Focus. It almost made me cry. For so long, I had felt like I was floating, my early years being nothing but sickness and burning sensations down my throat and digestive tract. The constant shuffle of the last several years handed off and passed between adults, whose faces and names all blended together into a vague smile matched with a generic, gentle voice. Focus. Imagine being able to pay attention when watching a videotape, or actually sleeping at night instead of being helplessly awake with racing thoughts. If Erica seemed to have anything, it was determination and control. Could resisting all food be the secret? After the magic word, I was all into the practice. Erica materialized beside me every day we weren't in class. At first, she forbid Bertie from sitting near us because Erica had read in a magazine that whatever your friend group looked like, you were most likely to become like them. That meant Erica looked at the overweight Bertie like she was carrying the fat flu. But eventually, Bertie earned her spot at our table when Erica realized she could devour the food on her plates in under two minutes. 
evading the eyes of our caretakers with athletic precision. I felt the effects of my new lifestyle before I saw them. The first day, I felt little more than that my stomach was annoyed at being empty. But by the second, I felt full-out assaulted. My stomach clenched. My head swam. My shoulders hunched like they were being sucked into my belly button. In class, I gathered up all my being and shoved it into my head, behind my eyes that blinked a lot more than usual but at least didn't hurt. I focused. And... After a few hours, it was like I was hovering above the painful parts of my body, having vaulted out of their reach. I wondered if my body would learn to climb after me. Erica was vain and mean, and without ever agreeing to, I found myself as a confidant for all her acidity. Everyone was too fat and disgusting and stupid and slow. She had a running catalog in her brain of every snack, lunch item, and dinner every kid at the center ate. She would describe dig dongs and slim jims and twizzlers and corn dogs like they were torture devices, painting them in slobbery, mushy, pest-ridden terms to discourage herself and me from seeing them as anything but. She at best tolerated Bertie and waited till she was out of earshot to relay to me how disgusting the sight and smell of the food she consumed for us looked going into her mouth. Before long, Erica and I were brought to the supervisor's office and made to watch videotape. It was all about anorexia and how to recognize it in preteen girls. An old man in a blue suit talked about some qualities anorexics had, that they were obsessed with food, constantly exhausted from expelling all the mental energy needed to starve themselves, that they were sullen and withdrawn, and given to sudden high emotions, including fits of rage, if their intense control was questioned or threatened. I blinked at the screen and glanced at Erica, wondering if the security cameras everyone said were there only for show in the hallways actually worked. To my surprise, Erica seemed totally relaxed, attentive even like she was in art class. When the video was over, she told Miss Ma Maxwell it was very interesting and she felt sorry for the girls in the video. We both promised to think about what we'd seen and then we went to join everyone else for lunch. On the way to the lunchroom though, Erica grabbed my arm and pulled me onto the smoking patio. She immediately started screaming into her arm and kicking the side of the building. How dare those fat fucks? Who did they think they were? She'd murder them in their sleep and eat their hearts. That sort of thing. But the plan Erica enacted when she calmed down proved to be more realistic. She went on a trading spree, fleecing out her white shirts and gray sweaters and black turtlenecks for any brightly colored replacements. And when she was done, she cleaned out my two drawers and did the same. She sweetly asked for a sewing kit from Miss Letitia and turned oversized shirts into dresses and reseamed the inside of things to make a drop waist that hid our tiny frames. She made cloth flowers for accents and even did some embroidery. But even more transformative was her demeanor. Overnight, Erica went from evil stepsister to princess through sheer force of will. She dragged me to the most crowded tables at lunch, started answering questions loudly in class, and laughed at the stupidest jokes. When we were alone, she angrily pestered me to do the same. Now I was the sullen one. Now I was going to give the game away. 
I told her on no uncertain terms that I was already dressed like a stuffed parrot, and I drew the line at being loud. People could find you if you were loud, and the most dangerous things happened with the loudest noises. The subterfuge, however clunky and obvious it looked to me, worked. I could see the consternation on the faces of some of the nosier caretakers, because now Erica had all the markings of a happy child. And if the staff couldn't nail you on one of the 36 issues listed on the evaluation chart, then a happy child you were, and the center wanted happy children. They were more likely to get fostered or adopted. So Erica succeeded, and we were both able to dwindle beneath our flamboyant attire, even as Bertie grew, until she stretched out the shirt that her older brother sent her from his community college. Then I was adopted, and things got much nicer. They asked me what I wanted to do with all the brightly colored clothes Erica had altered to camouflage us, and I said the other girls could have them. It made me sad to think of Erica when I was in the same room with her, and more than a little of me was excited to forget her. The woman who adopted me was older, not quite as old as Miss Maxwell, but older than Miss Tanya. She told me to call her mother. That wasn't hard. I'd never called anybody else that before. It was just me and her, in a very large house, that had pictures on the wall of her dead husband. She said they were planning to adopt together, but then he got stomach cancer, and so that took over six years of their lives. I didn't know you could get cancer in your stomach. Mother had a bookshelf in the kitchen, which I thought very strange. On the window, too, books stood at odd angles, some left open and bent backwards, some stacked. All were cooking books filled with recipes. She and her husband, my dad, I guess, had traveled a lot, and for a year after they returned, she would try and cook as much as possible from that country. I tried to put old habits behind me, but every dinner was a new horror. Nuclear orange curries, swamp green sauce on odd-shaped pasta, slimy chopped fruit on otherwise palatable salads. Everything hurt simply looking at it. I settled on eating half of it with my eyes closed and then shoving the rest away in a plastic bag when she wasn't looking. I tossed it in the garbage the next morning. My new school was much nicer and much more like the schools on TV. Everyone had matching uniforms and identical backpacks only distinguishable by sewn-on cartoon or sport patches. School was also a lot harder. Focusing had become second nature by then, but I found that even focus was a wily thing. Rather than the lesson, I'd find myself fixated on the teacher's eyebrow, almost magnifying it closer and closer, until I felt like I was the size of a flea looking through a hair forest. Other times, the light of the classroom was almost oppressively bright, and I could hear the buzz of the fluorescent lights ringing like an alarm bell. I felt faint some days, and others like I was on the verge of falling asleep, but never quite made it there. A lot of the girls walked around with clear tumblers filled with brown or beige liquid that they would sip on throughout the day. I found out this was coffee from the Starbucks up the street. I made a plea to Mother on the grounds of fitting in, and she agreed. We started every morning before school at the local coffee shop, and we both got to know several of the girls and their mothers through the practice. I started with what Samantha was drinking. Although it was so overwhelmingly sweet, I almost threw up from the first mouthful. I gradually made my way through my friend's drink orders. Lainey's macchiato with two splashes of caramel. Olivia G's iced blonde vanilla latte. Saima's espresso frappuccino. And finally, 
settling into the dark depths of my own daily cold brew coffee, always extra ice, always venti. Mother was certain this drink would result in me being hyper in class and written up for bad behavior. But after a week, she called and checked in with my teachers. They said however high the amount of caffeine I was drinking was, it didn't seem to have a negative effect. In fact, they all confirmed I seemed much more alert and active in class. And so the coffee was my saving grace. I rationed it, making sure it lasted until the end of lunch, where I chased it down with the white bread from the sandwiches I convinced mother I wanted. I felt so good. I even tried out for the track team because Samantha, Lainey, and Olivia G. said we should all do it together. However, my happiness made me lazy, and I stopped hiding the dinner food with my usual stealth. I'd chop the steak, or chicken steak, or salmon steak into small pieces and shuffle them around, then dump them in the garbage at the end of the meal. After all, I was thriving in school and had made it onto the middle school junior track squad. If any disagreements arose about my eating, I could surely point to that as proof that my food intake was good or at least defensible. However, when I came home one day to mother sitting at the table with a small plate of Malamars and a large glass of milk waiting for me, all my prepared arguments melted away. I peeled the chocolate off the cookies as she said her piece about nutrition and my growing body. When she finally stopped, I realized that she expected me to say something in response. Not knowing where to begin, I mumbled out an explanation of the safety of white foods, and she asked me to go on. I kept talking, and eventually found a lot to say about it, and even more about the magic of coffee and how much better I felt. She grimaced at that, but let me finish, and when I was done, she said something that sounded very practical to me. So you're willing to eat white foods without a problem? Yes, ma'am, I said, taking the marshmallow out of the last stripped Malamar. And you won't throw it away for dinner or lunch? Promise? I promise, I said. And she nodded, and I felt like I had made a pinky promise that would be very serious to break. I was surprised how fast things changed after that. The first alteration was my coffee, where mother came in and asked one of the baristas which of the flat whites had the highest calorie count. They told her, and she informed me that my new drink of choice would be the nitro flat white. I didn't think I could object, considering how cool she had been the night of our talk. She even let me stay up to see my favorite singer on a talk show that was on after my TV time ended. Lunch and dinner started to match in refreshing ways. Mashed potatoes with white gravy for dinner, and the leftovers would show up at my lunch the next day. Cauliflower with homemade ranch sauce, white beans from the crock pot with chicken so unresistant that it fell apart into harmless strands from the pressure of a spoon. Pale crackers with equally white cheeses, turnips doused in sour cream, for the first time ever, I became curious about dinner time. I had no idea so many white foods existed, nor the flavors hidden within. Coconut, egg white omelets, baked fish with lemon, no skin. I got to be one of the first string girls on the relay race team and improved my long jump by eight inches in one semester. But just like discovering the magic of coffee, the new successes made me careless. During a sleepover at Olivia G's, her parents took us to a grown-up restaurant that was very busy even though it was dark out. Mother had packed me white travel food, 
tuna and mayo sandwiches on white bread, and crab meat with the pink part cut off, and puffed rice cereal for the morning with a small bottle of vanilla soy milk, which I found out I liked as part of a banana smoothie recipe, because bananas are actually white and not yellow. Mother had let Olivia G's mother know that I could just order a vanilla milkshake or something like a plate of fries at the restaurant. But once I got there, the atmosphere was overwhelming. There was food everywhere, stacked high on plates, wet and dripping with sauces that shone in the lamplight. Everyone was happy. Piles of people were stuffed, laughing in wooden booths, and they crowded around giant pieces of cake that had candles that curved around like silly straws. I scoured the menu for something white, something to bring me into the fold. Olivia G's dad ordered the fried fish basket, her mom the steak and side salad, Olivia G the mac and cheese with bacon crumbles. I asked the waiter if the clam chowder description was accurate. He read it over and said, yes, it was accurate. I asked him to hold the green onions. When the dishes arrived, mine looked perfect. It was a milky cream sea in which floated bits of boiled potato and identically hued clams. I got bonus packets of puffy white crackers shaped like little seashells and kept them off to the side, popping them into my mouth when I wanted a crunch to complement the soft, non-threatening mush. I was almost put off by the spongy resilience of the clams, but I wouldn't allow the texture to ruin the exciting night. I bit through every obstacle and swallowed each bite with pride. I swiped my finger around the edge of the empty bowl, and Olivia G. said, in awe, that she had never seen me eat so much before. Her mom said that was rude, but I squeezed Olivia G.'s hand under the table so that she knew I had taken the compliment. That night, I woke up with a knife in my belly. The skin on my face felt like it was wet and rotting off my bones, but my throat was dry. I tried to stand, and the knife tried to leap up through my esophagus. I woke up Olivia G. by moaning, and we woke up her parents as she tried to half-walk, half-carry me to the bathroom. I threw up for the first time in a long time, and her mom and dad started to call mother. Though it took a transcendental power I did not know I had, I stood up straight and spoke to the shaky figures that looked parrot-shaped. It's all right. There's no need to call her so late. I feel fine now. I guess I just needed to get something bad up. We'll see her in a few hours anyway. When kids are calm, parents feel stupid if they're not. Back in bed with Olivia G., she whispered in a nervous voice if I was really all right. You said you felt like you were dying. You said there was a knife inside you? She said scared that I had been lying somewhere. I said that? I said, I'm sorry. It must have been a bad dream before I woke up. I lied again and pretended to fall asleep, but inwardly I seethed. I had been betrayed, and the betrayal made my blood boil. It made the bed sheets stink. It made my eyes burn like a supervillain, and the spit in my mouth taste like dried Play-Doh. White food. How could white food do this to me? How could everyone have sat there, laughing, having fun? How could the cooks in the kitchen, the waiters, the lady who showed us the table, even Olivia G's parents, just smiled and had a great time while I was being fed poison? Why hadn't anyone, anyone, been interested in my survival? 
I saw Erica's enraged face appear over mine like a death mask and understood for the first time how so much pure hatred could exist in the sticks of her body. The next morning, I scarfed down my puffed rice and inwardly swore it would be my last as Olivia G. had homemade pancakes. I let her try my vanilla soy milk, and when she said she liked it, I insisted she keep the container as we had more at home. When Mother came to pick me up, Olivia G.'s mom and dad told her about the clam chowder and the food poisoning. Mother said she was proud of me for having tried something new at a restaurant. Now you know you don't like clam chowder, she said, which was our code for when something made me feel nauseous. Oh, she did like it, Olivia G.'s mom insisted. She ate the whole bowl. It smelled fine. Tasted good. Right, Angelina? Yes, I said, and tried to smile without showing my gritted teeth. Oh, well, maybe I will make you some at home, Mother said, clearly wanting to withdraw before Olivia G's mom could go on about it for another ten minutes. I'd like that, I said, and took Mother's hand, happy that we were on the same page one last time. From that day on, the spirit of Erica was with me. I hid every bite of my still white dinners. I traded two or three times every lunch so no one could be totally certain what I'd had brought or eaten. I asked mother for more snack foods in addition to my lunches, which she gave me easily, and I used these to trade with my track teammates for their Gatorade. I ceased to eat. Instead, I used a Starbucks gift card Aunt Tabby had given me to order an extra double shot of espresso separate from my nitro flat white. One of the baristas saw me dumping the espresso into my reusable cup. She told me she could split the price of the drinks between two cards once I gave her a lighter explanation of mother controlling my coffee choices. That barista's name was Molly, and I always tipped her 30%, which is what mother said was the minimum for a job well done. The feeling of hunger felt good and familiar. I giggled at my rumbling stomach and relearned the art of hyper-focusing in class, counting the number of times the teacher said, um, or how often Samantha tapped her foot, that sort of thing. I listened to my friends more instead of monopolizing the conversation, but I talked in class and proudly brought home my disciplinary notice for doing so to mother as evidence of my bubbly, personable nature. I had trouble sleeping, but I asked for and had glow-in-the-dark stars put on my ceiling. Those I would count until I suddenly woke up to my alarm clock, though I always felt like I had just started falling asleep, but never quite made it there. I hadn't really estimated how much different running was to walking, especially on an empty stomach. So when I passed out at track practice, my last thought was, I should probably have given Michelle my spot on the relay team a few weeks ago. I had been wearing sweatpants and long sleeve uniform shirts to practice even though it was spring. So when Coach Barnard had to carry me to the nurse's office, she was shocked at how little it took to pick me up. The nurse called the hospital and I didn't wake up until I had an IV in my arm. I saw a mother talking to the doctor through the door window. I was prepared for the worst. Another girl, much older yet skinnier, in the bed to my left had been screamed at by her mom. She had grabbed her by the shoulders and started shaking her so hard that her stepdad and several nurses had to pull her out of the room and she was crying as much as her daughter. 
Something about being in the hospital makes parents go crazy, the girl to my right had said, like it was the location's fault. I prayed mother wouldn't be so affected. When she walked into the room, I couldn't look up into her eyes. I stared at my wrists, which were so very thin that the hospital band dangled with lots of air. Mother sat down by my bed, and I could feel the other girls waiting for the theatrics. You feel a lot of stress when you eat, Mother said slowly, too slowly for me to hear how many parts angry or sad or disappointed she was. I nodded. Why? What about the white food? At the mention of my former safe space, I scowled, immediately enraged. You don't like it anymore? Mother said, fishing. No, I hate it. I launched into my tirade about the clam chowder from Olivia G's birthday. The restaurant, the cooks, the servers, Olivia G, her parents, my parents, the group home, Mix Maskwell, Bertie, Erica, every single person I had ever known to that point had been setting me up, except Erica. She had said that food was pain, and she was right. It was a pain. It was a pain in the ass to have to think about and eat and poop out and do again and again, multiple times a day, every day, and then again, but more dangerous, for every event in your life that was supposed to be happy, from birthdays to Christmas to track meet wins. Every horrible person in this godforsaken world was just diabolically thinking up and executing traps for you to be forced to eat and possibly be sick. And even if you did and you threw up blood, there was no way out from being talked into the next force feeding. One of the girls in the other bed said, here, here, before she had a coughing fit and a few of them clapped. I immediately blushed and mother looked over her shoulder and threw the girls a death glare. They shut up. She turned back to me. Darling, have I ever set you up? No. I hoped I hadn't hurt her feelings. Have you ever gotten sick from the food I made for you? No, mother, I said, feeling teary-eyed. Do you know how much I love you? Yes, mother. And you love me too? I nodded not trusting myself not to cry. Will you make another deal with me? Okay. We negotiated breakfast, lunches, and dinners. The same meal, every day. I could assemble my half cup of oats, half cup of yogurt, and half cup of cereal every morning. And after I ate, mother would give me the cash needed for my morning coffee. My debit card privileges were revoked for the time being. Lunch would be two peanut butter and jam sandwiches on whole grain bread, a hard-boiled egg, a hummus cup and carrots. And dinner would be peas, three baked chicken tenders, and a side of mashed potatoes. What I gave up in terms of having to eat food with color, mother promised me regulation. There'd be no experimentation, and once I got used to these three square meals, I'd never have to get used to anything ever again. No need for me to check up on what ingredients she'd bought that week. One type of smooth peanut butter, one homemade hummus recipe, one measuring spoon set aside for me to make my breakfast with. We shook on it, and Mother said she'd make sure everything was ready for my first day back. 
After she left, the girl in a bed across from me immediately started talking about the art of binging and purging when another girl threw a book at her. Your mom seems really nice, the book girl said. You should give it a try, at least for now. Not eating too early can make you short. Short, I repeated. I wondered if Erica ever grew tall enough to be a model. All the girls warned me to beware the welcome home dinner. They said whenever anyone went home, their first obstacle was tolerating a detour to a restaurant or a huge home-cooked meal where everyone loaded up your plate and watched you not eat it. I had been eating the hospital food, mainly because the other option was being fed through a tube, and the look of one poking out of another girl had made me start crying. The food was mushy and thankfully tasteless despite their grotesque colors. On the drive home, I waited with my stomach in knots for the inevitable turn-off into a parking lot or at least a drive through But we simply drove home. And when we stepped in, there was our dinner. Two plates of peas, baked skinless chicken tenders, and mashed potatoes. They were already portioned on the plates. All we had to do was bring them to the kitchen for a quick microwave. Mother lit candles, and that made everything look a little softer and duller and warmer. And that was my dinner, and breakfast was my breakfast, and lunch was my lunch for the rest of fifth grade, and sixth grade, and seventh grade. When I came home and told mom that some of the other girls in my high school were teasing me about always bringing the same lunch, she told me to simply shrug and say, this is what I like, and it's healthy. I said that wouldn't work. She said I'd be surprised. People can get used to anything, even horrible, terrible things. Something as unextraordinary as a preteen eating the same balanced lunch every day would fade into the background very quickly. And by the end of the school year, they'd have to remind themselves about my PB&J sandwiches, and then remind themselves again why it was odd. And she was right. She was right through 8th grade, and ninth grade, and 10th and 11th grade. By then we were allowed to go off campus for lunch, and my friends always wanted to go get fast food at least twice a week, especially on half-day Fridays. I felt the familiar knot of stress start to tie up my throat as I tried to come up with excuses as to why we shouldn't or I couldn't, and I debated whether I had enough social capital to demand that I wouldn't. But before doing anything drastic, I went to mother again, and she had similarly good advice. Your friends only go to two or three places, don't they? It seems that if you can find one thing to order from every chain, then it's just like me making you lunch. Fast food workers aren't allowed to be creative like chefs. Everything is designed to taste exactly the same at every location. I told her that my friends were very inconsiderate when it came to lunch, and half the group would decide to go eat out and force the rest of us along. Mother said that was how teenagers are and they did not mean it to hurt me. That weekend, she and I drove around to different fast food spots and we ordered until I found something I could tolerate from my friends' favorite places. Large fries from McDonald's, black beans and rice from Taco Bell, and cheese sticks from Pizza Hut. And it worked, just as she said. How do you know so much about people my age, I asked, always curious about how well she took me as a daughter. I just remember, she said, and you'd be surprised how many adults are just bigger kids. 
Once you know that, you understand most things. Then, inexplicably, one day, I felt hungry. But that was the wrong word. I felt hungry on long car rides, or if mother couldn't find me the one jam I liked and I had to skip lunch that day. No, on this day, for no reason at all, I ate breakfast and drank coffee and still couldn't concentrate. I stared out the window. I looked at my book. I stared back out the window. I missed it when the teacher called my name and then had to say that I didn't know where we were in our French books. Lainey, my best friend since freshman year, came up to me after class, teasing. She had been in class with me and Olivia G, but Olivia G went to the Catholic high school, so now I knew Lainey better. You look like you're in love, she said. I think you were watching the basketball team running laps. Which one is it? Lainey, I said, very serious. I was thinking about food. Lainey, whom I had told everything, my lunch, my time at the hospital, my fast food ordering, only blinked at me. Thought of it like how? Like I wanted it. Lainey's eyes went wide. She took my hand. We immediately thought up a plan. We tell Amanda and Claire that we had to study for our AP calculus final, and then we go to the McDonald's alone. We'd even drive the extra 15 minutes to a different McDonald's where none of the workers knew us and so wouldn't remark on the change in my order. What are you hungry for? Lainey asked as she drove. I don't know, but I don't want to get sick. Oh, no way, of course not. Should we start with, like, a salad? Start? Oh, no, I think I've got, like, one, I don't know, meal in me. So... I think I better commit to just one start and finish because that's it forever, you know? Okay, that makes sense, Lainey said, even though I wasn't sure it did. We parked in the parking lot and watched the entrance as Lainey scrolled through the menu on her phone. Okay, which of these sounds good to you? Chicken sandwich, chicken wrap, chicken nuggets. Oh, they have a filet of fish here. Have you ever had fish sticks? It's like a patty of that. Lainey looked over at where I was staring, towards a pornographic poster of a double quarter pounder with cheese. I can't have that, I said, and was surprised at the disappointment in my own voice. Oh no, you would die, Lainey said. My mouth is watering. I need to spit. No, that's good. Just uh, swallow it. What? Ew. <laughs> what else do you usually do with spit? After more discussion... Lainey suggested we start small. A quarter pounder was four ounces of meat, and Lainey found that a standard McDonald's patty was 1.6 ounces. Under two sounded safe. If I get it without anything on it, then it's just bread and meat, I said as we got out the car. Yeah, but don't worry about requesting that. Lots of people eat it that way. And they just put on their own ketchup. I reached my arm out to stop her. I think I want cheese. I said it out loud and almost ran back. Oh, um, you think that's a bad idea? I don't. I mean, I only like cheeseburgers. I don't even really eat plain hamburgers anymore. But I don't want you to get sick. But then, what if the burger really is better with cheese and you never eat it again because you didn't try it at its best? Lainey shut up. We looked at each other and waited for the other one to make a move. The next thing I knew, we were in front of the counter. Lainey was ordering. 
I will have the cheeseburger combo meal, large fries, and a Coke, she said, like she was the opening speaker at a debate meet. And a chocolate shake. No vanilla, I said, remembering that I hated chocolate. One of each, Lainey said, and pulled out her debit card. Why did you order shakes? Lainey asked me as we sat in a booth far away from the entrance and other people. I don't know. I just remembered people dipping fries in their milkshakes was a thing. Yeah, a gross thing, Lainey said, and then tried to recover. But if you want to try it, I will too. We both looked down at the wrapped sandwiches sitting on our paper line tray. The fries were making me feel more at ease, which is what Lainey had hypothesized. She had taken the chocolate shake, and my vanilla shake was so white it almost glowed in the sunlight. Are you ready? Lainey asked. I guess so, I said, and picked up the little package, unwrapping it with awkward unfamiliarity, like when I'd handled my very first Christmas present. I bit into the burger and was overwhelmed with flavors and textures and smells that ran down the back of my throat and then exploded up, up to some sensory organ that had never known feeling. The squish didn't bother me. The drip didn't bother me. The fact it came with mustard already on it didn't bother me. Everything melted and pressed together as beautiful as a candle or exciting as a pillow fight or magical as love. The bun had seeds, and these I rescued from the paper and popped in my mouth, crushing them between my teeth. I took bites of burger and then bites of fries. I dipped fries in my milkshake, in Lainey's milkshake with her permission. The fries were hot, the milkshake cold, and what did I care? I almost cried. I did laugh. I took the last bite of my burger and dunked it in my tub of ketchup and polished it off. Lainey applauded me. I bowed. I felt transcendent for about 45 seconds. After that, I found my head in my hands. What's wrong? Lainey said, alarmed at the emotional about face that had happened before her eyes. I can't believe I did this, I mumbled. Did what? Do you feel sick? I need to call my mom. I jumped up and ran to the bathroom. Just like I did when I was 14 and Bailey Proctor had spilled grape soda down the back of my dress at the junior prom. I almost fainted in relief as I ran in. It was a single bathroom. I could lock myself in. I quick-dialed mother, pacing around the tiled floor and trying not to look at myself in the mirror. Why had I done this? I had a good system. We'd had a good system. And I put everything we'd work for to risk. Why? Because I woke up one morning and felt bored by my oats? I hadn't even slept on this idea. Hello, honey, she picked up, never suspecting. I immediately called her mommy and launched into my apology. I told her about feeling hungry and telling Lainey first and the McDonald's trip and that I could have gotten a salad or a chicken sandwich, but I didn't because I was selfish. And when I finally gave a complete step-by-step -step of my entire day up to that moment, I took a breath and had to sit down on the toilet with my pants on because I felt dizzy. There was silence on the other end of the phone. So you ordered a cheeseburger for the first time? Yes, I said, and then took another deep breath because I had yelled. Did you like it? Well, yes, it tasted very nice, and the consistency felt right, and I liked the pickles being on it. I usually hate pickle smell, but it was nice. 
and the meat and ketchup. And they had sesame seeds on the bun. That was nice. Usually hate things that small. Yes, but nothing got stuck in my teeth. And I had a milkshake. Nice. You think so? Yes, my love. Do you have key club after school today? Yes, I sniffled. We have daily meetings until the third. Okay, I'll expect you home at six then. I love you. I love you too, mother. I spent the rest of the day with my head down. What did this mean? What was my day-to-day -day life going to look like? I could definitely go and simply order off a menu like my friends. I had the ability. Today had proven that. I could even enjoy it, apparently, for a moment. What did my mother really think? Had she hung up the phone and sighed in relief? No more mindlessly making mashed potatoes. No more crates of jam being delivered to the house at a time of day no one was home to save it from the porch pirates. No more freezer full of frozen chicken tenders because I had needed more uniformity in my only real source of protein. I had a panic attack in the West bathroom because I had the sudden crushing thought that maybe, maybe my mother had gotten off the phone with me and immediately called my therapist with the good news. Was I better now? I had disordered eating. My therapist had been very clear about that. She wanted there to be no mistake that this system I had with mother was only temporary, and I had to keep pushing to be able to eat without stress, but also without the guarantee of set food times and menus. Something that, apparently, other people in the world did easily or easier than I did? Or maybe they were just hiding it better. Or maybe they were oppressed by other things fearful of other aspects of their bodies. I imagined someone desperately seeking a doctor who'd remove their eyes, or someone cutting off the tips of their toes to stop crud from accumulating under their nails, someone who was terrified to breathe in toxic air and denied themselves oxygen. I felt defeated as Laney drove me home, my uneaten, packed lunch in my hands, like every day when someone convinced me to go get fast food. Once home, I would take it and dump the contents in the garbage and wash out the segmented Tupperware with soap and water, leaving it to dry on the dish rack for the next day. On any other day, as soon as I got home from track or some club, my dinner would be waiting for me because I refused to eat any snacks or protein bars or anything thicker than Gatorade. But what about today? Would mother assume I wasn't hungry? Was I well enough to seek out my own food? That I wanted cheeseburgers and fries all the time for lunch? Did I want that? I stepped through the front door, already on the verge of tears, when I stopped. Mom had set out my plate of peas, three chicken tenders, and mashed potatoes. I stared at the food, sitting on top of our blue woven table setting and was struck by how still and perfect and frozen in time this meal seemed, how effortless it was to love and fearlessly appreciate. And as I felt this gratefulness, which I had tasted so many times from and for my mother, I remembered. What do you think of this? She had asked me, handing over a piece of breaded chicken she had made back when she was trying to home make my chicken tenders. 
I dutifully took the small bite, even though my nose had already told me I wouldn't like it. It's too spicy, I said. Okay, no pepper in the next batch. You're not mad? I was always afraid of the inevitable day her goodwill towards me would run out. Nope, she said, and put the pepper on the second shelf of the spice cabinet, where all the spices I didn't like were being sequestered until the day I let them out. Wow! Megan, crank that cranky. All right, let's do it. I'm going to crank the cranky. Britain is in the green room dancing right now. Britain, we see you. We see you. Everybody else is going to see you very shortly. Hey, everyone who's listening, especially Britain's friends, if you have questions that you would like us to ask Britain while we're doing cranky talk, uh, you can ask them below and we'll we'll try to get to them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, we ready? Ready. All right. Oh my Megan. goodness. I love that ending. I love the spice rack oh. thing. That's beautiful. Oh, it was beautiful. It was so satisfying. I just, I just loved how it just kind of brought everything together at the end, like her journey into flavors, but also like didn't overwhelm her. You know, it's it wasn't too overwhelming. You know, it's like okay, they'll be there when I'm ready for them. Yes. And that kind of felt like the whole emotion of the of the ending, and I just I really appreciated how that all came together. Agreed, agreed. I think yeah. it's very hopeful that she's going to figure this out. And her mom in the piece is just so wonderful. She's she's so wonderful. And it it really made me think this time about this story being really the story of her and her mom. You know, I know it's about her journey with food, but her mom plays such a large role in her being able to move forward um, to new to new places and experiencing new things that I that I really felt the the presence and the the patience and the just the comfort of the mom in this in this yeah. this piece speaking of I think this is interesting that you mentioned that because this piece reminds me it was based off of a book uh, but I didn't read the book uh, but white oleander with Michelle Pfeiffer do you remember that movie yeah, but that well, okay. So what the the girl reminds me of of this story. But what's interesting is Michelle Pfeiffer is completely a contrast to this mother. I just yes. kept thinking, what was this that it resembles? And then when you mentioned that, I was like, oh, it's like that, except for the mother <laughs> will eat your soul. It's a bit the exact opposite. Yeah, for those who aren't aware, White Oleander is the the story of this very vindictive woman who has a daughter and she ends up going to prison and sort of abandons her daughter to the foster system and and never really quite is able to be the compassionate and passionate person uh, patient person that Angelina's mother is in this in this story. Um, that's interesting to me that that this story triggered that. <laughs> Marie, that memory. <laughs> Maureen says, beautiful reading, so well done, and such a deep and emotional story. I, I agree. Oh, thank you for, thank you, Maureen. Yes, I, I completely agree. Uh, another thing that really struck me this time was, was the beginning. Like, I love how Britain just gives us 
just enough details about what this young girl's life was like before you begin her story that we know she's been through something really awful, but she doesn't like drown us in the details of that. It's like we get just enough. <laughs> and Is I've there had one that you too. haven't jumped at, Megan? I don't think so. Let's bring Brendan in. Brendan! Yay! Hello. Hi, hey, everybody. So before we jump into the questions, I just want to introduce Britton because she's up to all kinds of wonderful and exciting things all the time. So uh, Britton is an award-winning screenwriter who occasionally vacations to other mediums like short stories and YouTube videos. She currently runs two YouTube channels. Mac and Channel is a comedy macaroni and cheese review show in the style of Pee Wee's Playhouse. It's amazing. You guys it's have to check it out. Really ridiculous, but awesome. It's so it's so good, and it's so Britain. And the right. other one is God Thinks, which is a channel that explores modern problems through a progressive Christian lens. And her, her, her actually her episode Britain. Like, what was the title of the most recent episode? I love the title of it. Uh, what can Christians learn from the Adams family? <laughs> yeah, Complete so that gives, gothic glow ups and all that. <laughs> so that gives you an idea of what you're getting yourself into. Um, and, uh, you know, Bryn doesn't do things halfway. So uh, you should know that uh, if you don't already. And you, she also has a girl gamer fiction series on Amazon, which you can find under the name Gitmo Ammo. And her next project is to co-direct and produce a feature film entitled The Secret Lives of YouTubers with her husband, Patrick Wells Valenti. Currently, Devin Druid from 13 Reasons Why and Nicole Maines from Supergirl are attached to lead. So, Britton, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for inviting me, Megan. Oh, oh. <laughs> oh she's bringing out her, her lovely voice. A radio voice, that's correct. A radio voice. There we go. <laughs> so, um, Britton, will you start off by just telling us a little bit about what inspired this you to write this piece? Sure. Um, uh, being being a young girl in America, uh, one of the things that always happened on Health Week was the anorexia talk. <laughs> because, And that's important because it does uh, plague a majority of young girls. But I guess it was because of that, I'll go through stages where all I want to do is watch anorexia or eating disorder <laughs> documentaries and films, and there's a lot of them. Mm -hmm. um, the one I most recently got into was a British show called Super Sized versus super skinny and it's part fascinating diet experience and then part trash Brit, Brit reality TV like equal measures but what this show does is it takes a person who is um, chronically obese and it takes a person who is dramatically underweight but not anorexic um, and puts them in a house together and they have to eat each other's meals with each other and, you know, at first you're like, okay, I can watch one episode of this, but then it's too exploitative and I will have to have to take a shower. But actually, I don't think you can argue with the results. It really provides this fascinating look into um, the reality that, you know, if you have a problem with food, you have a problem with food. And maybe your problem with food leads you to overeat. And maybe your problem of food with food leads you to undereat but it's actually kind of on the exact same spectrum 
in terms of which way you go. And I've always been a person who loves food, <laughs> who really loves food and has not suffered a lot of fear of it. You, you certainly you do. Certainly do. <laughs> uh, while yeah, Britain was in the green room, she was snacking away. I was, I was like, okay, I've got half an hour and this is my dinner time. So I'm going <laughs> to inhale a bunch of chicken wings. Um, but one of my great fears of like having children is what if you have a daughter or someone who is plagued by an eating disorder? Because it always seemed like this very like, you know, almost demonic, like monkey on your back kind of thing that is so hard to shake when it happens. Um, and I just couldn't help but imagine like what it is like for people who have these problems with food and what super size versus super skinny if you watch enough seasons of it like i have um what you see is this amazing spectrum of people's problems and how you know the fear of throwing up is a very big fear that some people never quite get over or you know picky eaters as adults uh and where that comes from how it's not just like this ingrained tick in your brain but it can come from these lived experiences it can be the result of trauma it can be the cause of trauma like it's it's really fascinating to get into yeah, absolutely. And I really felt that in the speech, unlike any other piece I've ever I've read, ever read about, about relationship with food. Like, it felt, like it felt so, so authentic and so specific that I, I just felt like, even though I've never had these certain issues with food, I could understand this character and I could understand their anxiety and I could understand like how he would develop something like this as a as a result of whatever you've been through. Uh, so I, I really feel like you brought that out so well in the story. Thank you. Yeah. I think we I think we kind of judge adult picky eaters a lot. I know when I was young, uh, when I was younger, I really did like, what do you mean you don't like sushi? What do you mean you don't like this? What do you mean you don't like that? But as I get older and you hear about, you know, people who especially like if you had a if you had an illness when you were a kid and you constantly threw up you were in and out of the hospital or you were in a situation where you had to eat or digest or drink or do things that you did not want to do like put them into your body this can be a really really traumatic experience and then when you become an adult and you're like yes i get to choose what goes inside me mm -hmm. it can be in a way very freeing or it can be very claustrophobic. And I'm not a, I'm not a food therapist. <laughs> However, I do, I do think there's something to the idea of, you know, give it time. Kids do grow out of things. Britain, Adults this, do grow out of things. This particular uh, food issue, like I, I love, like, like there's so many sen sensitivity, sensitivities people have with food. And I really appreciated that about your piece, by the way, but uh, her, specific like issue with like just eating whites and everything. Um, how did that come about? Like, did you find a story and you wanted to like grow that out? Not a specific story, but I guess just, um, I'm not a texture person. So like you can give me something that is pure mush. You can give me something hard as a rock and I'll probably find a way to chomp it down. <laughs> but for so many adults, you know, they look at it and they're like, I can't, 
Mm. I can't, it looks mushy. I can't, it looks like this. I can't, it looks like that. And it can be anything really. So I just imagined what it was like to be a child and children. I think our first indicator of what's safe and what's not um, are colors. So just this idea that, you know, what would probably be the most disastrous food you could eat as a three-year-old? Probably a flaming hot Cheeto. <laughs> and it probably looks like a Lego to a baby brain. Meanwhile, what's the opposite of a flaming hot Cheeto? Well, it's probably just like a bowl of applesauce. Something mushy, something pale, something white, something mm. non-dynamic. I like that. That's that's so interesting. I can remember being kind of the exact opposite when I was a kid. I liked things that were colorful. I remember my mom serving me this microwavable rice pilaf that had like little peppers and um, it was it was red and green and white and you know, had all these and I just and I just loved it so much. And I just remember like her giving it to me and me just like staring at it and being like, it's so colorful. You know, I was just drawn to more more colors in my food than, than like bland, you know, just green stuff. And I remember being like, if there was, if there were green beans and broccoli being like, you know, disappointed because that was, they were both green. I just love it. Cause we all have such different, we all have such different experiences. Like what, once you, once you start asking people like, tell me about your favorite color, tell me about the food you hate, tell me about something like you sort of, sort of start to understand that you know our brains really are wired differently yeah. like some of us are disturbed by too many bright colors i'm obviously not but some of us are and then some of us are very disturbed by too many straight lines or just like you know whatever it is it's really it's really like a kaleidoscope of humanity up here yeah that's so true and a lot i think a, a big part of living is just trying it just like figuring out those things about yourself and then figuring out how you can maneuver in the world based on these things that bother you or, or comfort you. Oh my goodness, you fi you figure them out. And then once you figure them out, there's other issues that you're like, or, ah, and then they change or they change. They and then change. you're like, oh, absolutely. Hey, <laughs> no, and I, I was one of those kids who had like a bucket of a bucket of like medical issues when I was very young. So I was like, and now the hospital all the time. And I think that's one of the reasons I was a picky eater growing up. But then like, the age of 14 rolled around and I was like, people are going to judge me if I don't like, like sushi. People are going to really have an opinion if I don't <laughs> like, I don't know, try, try things. So I better, I better get on this and I'm glad. Right now I want to, I want to throw you with like something. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. I'm going to throw it. What was the most difficult thing about this piece to write? Boom. I think the most difficult thing was um, trying, probably trying to get into the head of Erica because um, you did like, a great job. Thank you. Because, uh, in, in, and that's the thing. In, in some ways, it was also trying to write the main character because, like, as, a, as an outgoing person and, you know, from an outgoing family, rage is really easy to uh, access, but like being so mad about something that is inherently bad for you, you know, it is bad that Erica does not eat. It is bad that she is training herself to sort of see the world in this very narrow-minded way. And, you know, she's in the foster care system, so she probably comes from an extremely traumatized home. 
And then like juxtaposing that with the main character and how detached and unemotional she is for like most of her life, which is a protective thing that, you know, kids that come out of the foster care system will go to. Um, and just uh, trying to juxtapose these two voices that have the exact same thing in common, but they're coming out from two different perspectives. Um, so yeah, just trying to capture the voices, I guess. I have to say I... that was one of the things that most impressed me with the piece was how you captured Erica. She's not likable, but right. I liked her, you know, like I felt like she was a real person. I would have been happy to explore her world more just because I liked her so much. Obviously you don't have to write that. I just liked her so much. And I thought you did a great job of making a dynamic character that kind of fades into the story, but is still there throughout. Like I, I thought you did a great job with that. I 100% I agree. I love that line that Erica has about it, it like ripping their hearts out and eating them or, or something. And I'm, and I can remember being that age and being so mad that like you have that feeling of like, I could release total terror on everyone around me and it, just not being able to kind of manage that. Um, and then I also loved how Angelina brings, like remembers Erica, like when she's, when she's going through a difficult moment, like she thinks back to Erica as like, her guidance? I don't know. Like, like just to it. I just like that you reflected back on her and and kind of reminded us that um, this is this is someone. This is another route that Angelina could have gone if she had chosen a, a different way or had different influences. Yeah, I feel like with a lesser writer, um, Erica would have been harnessed as like a villain, and you did not do that. You did not no. do that, and I loved it. I love that. No, not at all. And 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 just adding to that, Angelina has a lot of complexity, even though she is someone who is very internal. She we see her emotions, we see her her not just her anxiety, but her humanity. And um, I agree. In a in the lesser hands, she would have come off as being much more flat. I, uh, I I really I really love children. And what did what did Rob used to say? By the time you're eight, you're a Rob, genius. Rob is was our teacher. Like he was, was the chair teacher? of our our program oh. at Carnegie Mellon. Just for people who don't know, <laughs> and he had adopted uh, at that time. I think was an eight year old, and he just came in one day and was like, "By the time you're eight, you're a genius. Like the amount of things that you have to learn between the ages of zero and eight is just like you know." It's everything. You have everything you basically need to operate in the world, and then everything else is icing. Yeah, I think that's uh, a. I mean, that's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> I don't know how much we really result. We evolve past eight. We years don't. Old, you know? We don't. We, we definitely. We, we learn. We, we learn so many coping mechanisms by eight. <laughs> we, sure, we sure do. We grow up, we look older, but I think the secret is that we're always children. We are always children, yeah. always children and always picky eaters. Britton, <laughs> I love that you were on our show. Thank you for being famous and deciding still to do this with us. Very yes. famous online. <laughs> Thank you so much, Britton. It was a, a pleasure to have you on the show, a pleasure for you to share your story with us. 
Uh, to everybody who's listening, if you want to learn more about Britain's wonderful work, please check her out on Amazon. Check her out on her YouTube channels, Mac and Channel and God Thinks. And also she's on Instagram at Mac underscore in underscore channel. So thank you again, Britain. You're awesome, Britain. Y'all are awesome too. Oh, <laughs> and I have a quick word. Oh, yeah. Um, and remember, kids, no matter what YouTube video you click on, try to watch at least 25% of it because it truly helps the channel creators algorithmically. And most people click off after 10 seconds. Be a hero. Don't click off after 10 seconds. <laughs> Thank you for that PSA, Britain. We appreciate it. Thank you it. so much, Britain. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> and a perfect segue for that. Um, oh, we're trying to gain uh, subscribers, right? Like we're trying to hit 100 because we get special privileges if we get to 100. So when you subscribe, you're special to us. Yes, please. So if you haven't already, please go to our YouTube page and uh, subscribe. Hit the little bell on the side, which, which will give you notifications of any time we are about to go live or we're about to have another video available for you. Please like the episodes that you find interesting and leave a comment. Let us know what you liked or you didn't like if you have suggestions for us. Uh, we were happy. We want to, to be able to bring, we want to know our listeners so that we can make sure that we bring stories that you guys are going to enjoy and appreciate. Um, and this is first and foremost a podcast. Um, Megan shared a story with me like a little bit ago that her brother listens to it while he's running. So like if you are somebody who's on the go, like you can find us in all the podcast streaming devices. Yeah, ab absolutely. If you can't, if you can't listen or watch us on YouTube, that's fine. You can go to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Stitcher, download the app, download any of our episodes and take them with you wherever you go. You can listen to them while you're running, while you're doing chores. I like to listen to audio recordings while I'm doing chores because I hate cleaning. So it's a good way to keep me entertained while I'm mopping, um, which is a pretty hard thing to do because I hate doing it so much. And I like doing, <laughs> I like listening to them while I'm doing backflips. Oh yeah, well, you know. <laughs> just kidding. I don't know how to do a backflip. Amazing and does backflips. But for those of us who can't do backflips uh, and need a little I more. I don't know how, I just lied right there. <laughs> but um, so also Megan has a website, meganamorrison.com. I have like a psychic premonition that here in 2021, she's going to be world famous with her screenplays. Oh, so you're I gonna like wanna that. be able to snoop in on her. And in order to do that, you have to subscribe. That's right. And Jeremy has a website, jeremyraystories.com. And if you subscribe now, he's already world famous. So you oh. can get his world famous micro stories in your email box every week. And these are guys that you can listen to while you're waiting for your coffee water to boil in the morning, while you're brushing your teeth, whatever. And it's they're just very quick, but very fulfilling. So make sure that you subscribe to you, those. You're welcome. We're almost done. We're almost <laughs> done pitching things to you, but we're not done yet. You oh, ready for this? We're not done yet. It's All right, let me, let me, let me. Oh, okay. So for oh. those of you who are listening, yes. Jeremy is booming yes. our oh. NRSS pillow, which is black background with orange and purple and white letters all over it. 
it's bright, it's beautiful. You, your family and friends would love one of these for the holidays, upcoming people's birthdays. They would lose their minds. It's so like them, a real pillow. It, it is pillow. like a real pillow and is a real pillow. It so. sure is. It's, it's a real <laughs> pillow. So for other real things that have NRSS on them, uh, please go to our website, nobodyreadshortstories.com. You'll find all of our merchandise there. We have t-shirts, we have caps, we have fanny packs, we have leggings, we have socks, um, and everything for <laughs> all the things that your hearts desire in the colors of orange and purple. <laughs> what else do we miss? We did, I don't think media. we missed anything. Social I don't think media. You can find we're selling ourselves here. We're selling ourselves. We got to get that equipment going for season three. <laughs> That's right. So you can find us on Facebook, Instagram. If you want to show us some Twitter love, you can use the hashtag NRSS podcasts. And, and we have a, this is the last thing. You should stick around next week. We'll stick around. You don't want to stay here after this, but like tune in here. next week because we're going to have a great episode, right, Megan? That's right. We are we are showcasing a um a very harrowing and thrilling story uh, called The Awakening by Carrie Newell. It's, it's so, so powerful. Good. It's you so do not good. want to miss it. Oh. Uh, so please come back next week and enjoy. And if you haven't already, go vote. Vote. Bye, everyone. Thanks for tuning Bye. in. Thank you, everybody. No one reads short stories anymore. I really don't know what they're written for. Go write a short story and throw it out the door. Because no one reads short stories. Funny, sad. No one reads short stories anymore Yes, no one reads short stories